blessing for me to come to you in this webcast of Dynamic Love Web Church. It is an honor to minister to you and to see you being encouraged by the very good news of Jesus Christ. Today I have uh, preached at Grand Rapids and just drove down about four hours, five hours from there. Got uh, booked myself into a hotel. I don't know what the town's name is. It's somewhere next to some freeway. And I'm on my way to Sioux Falls, where I will be ministering Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. So, uh, uh, as you can imagine, you know, I've been preaching, and I've been busy, and driving, and all those kind of things, uh, and a lot of excitement around that. I'm just experiencing such a wonderful, wonderful power and presence of God as I'm ministering in different places. I think it is the best time in all of my travels to the United States, seeing the most, um, or the greatest effect of understanding coming to people and fruit of understanding in their lives, where you can just see that revelation on the faces of people. Uh, Those of you that follow the ministry regularly know that I've really, in the last year, put a Well, actually in the last four years, if you go and listen to the messages, I've been focusing on the resurrection all the time. But in the last year, it is as if the Lord just gave me greater clarity and understanding and also the the ability to communicate it. And we have really seen great fruit uh, in the U.S. as we were traveling, as I was traveling and uh, bringing the gospel. To God, all the glory for that. So um, I'm excited, I'm blessed, and I thank you that you can be, that many of you are happy with me, happy with the Lord, and the joy of the Lord is inside us, seeing what God is bringing forth in people's lives. So I want to welcome you to this webcast, everybody that's slotting in for the first time, as well as all our regular viewers, thank you for slotting in. I'm also very grateful to the people that have been um, Coming to the meetings, driving, some people driving four or five hours, others two, three hours coming to the meetings, and where people in the web church that never knew about one another, some people were in the very same town, uh, not knowing of one another, uh, found one another at the meeting here in Grand Rapids, and we're going to just see how people are going to start to come together in, uh, in home group, in a home group, and just fellowship around this good news and how other people are also getting into the good news and how this thing is just starting and this is what i'm seeing in grand rapids and this is also true for other places it is wonderful to see what god is doing Uh, our custom is to have communion uh, as we start the service and I want to uh, read a passage to you. Well, as for me, I don't have any of the elements here, but I trust that you that uh, know this, know how we do things here, do have it together, and we're going to just have this communion together, thinking and pondering upon what God has done, thinking of the body that was broken, the resurrection, and all of those things. Uh, now, there's two passages I want to read as pertaining to Uh, the resurrection, we're going to talk about the communion in the light of this. And then the message we're going to have is going to be a message that I recorded in Grand Rapids about two days ago, which I trust will also bless you. Uh, Let's start with Acts 2. This is so, so powerful. This is a passage where 
it talks about the resurrection of Jesus and how David basically foresaw this. And this is uh, verse 24, Acts 2, 24, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by that. For David speaks concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. This is talking about Jesus and his death. Uh, David prophesying about this. Jesus is actually saying that uh, he was always seeking the Lord. That's the speaker now switching off there. Sorry for that background noise there. Um, So what he's saying is here that uh, Jesus was saying, this is actually now looking into the life of Jesus. He says, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. So he says, my heart was happy and everything, but my body shall rest in hope because you will not leave my soul in hell. In other words, you will not leave my soul dead or that I would die. Neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You shall make me full of joy with your countenance. So what is he saying here? He's basically saying that uh, my body, Jesus said, that you've made me happy, or basically it says here um, that he was, he rejoiced with his tongue and was glad in the Lord and was always seeking the Lord. But he says, although I had rejoicing in my mouth in who the Father was, I also know that when I die, that my body shall rest in hope. What hope? In the hope of the resurrection. That is what he says. My body will rest in hope, in the hope of the resurrection. It says here, for you have made known to me the ways of life, which was simply to trust the Father. You shall make me full of joy with your countenance. So he says here that you've made known to me the way wherein you can actually raise me from the dead and restore my life. And then he says, in this resurrection, my joy will be full. Why? Because my countenance shall be... Uh, the countenance of God, for thou shalt make me full of joy with your countenance. So he says, and when you look at the countenance of God, it's the countenance of immortality. There's no death in it. So Jesus says that he will die, his body will die, uh, or when his body dies, it will, he will, it will rest in hope. God will restore his life, will clothe him with his very countenance, in the resurrection and that will then be the fullness of joy so jesus come and actually uh, defines fullness of joy as being complete and whole uh, in clothed with the countenance of god in the fullness of what he is and that includes his body now i would like to go to first john and just hear this this is really powerful It says in 1 John, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, 
In other words, this message of eternal life, the resurrection, the immortal human body sharing in the fullness of the countenance of God. It says that which was from the beginning, which, which we've only heard about through the prophets and, and like David wrote there, it says, which we have seen with our eyes, now talking about the resurrected Jesus, which could be seen, uh, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled as pertaining to the word of life or this message of life. Or I want to use other words there, this message of being fully filled with the countenance of God uh, as human beings, referring to what I just read in Acts 2 there, a glorified body. Then it goes on, it says, For this life was manifested, and we have seen it. We bear witness, witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which you have, we have seen and heard declare unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So he says here, Jesus was physically raised from the dead. We believe upon Him. And as He is now fellowshipping in this realm of immortality, we... As normal human beings, we still are seeing mortality, but we are now fellowshipping inside this very same thing. We are now partakers of this eternal and immortal life, which the Spirit will also then manifest us in us in the return of Jesus Christ. Now, let's go on. It says here, these things about the Jesus that we saw that was risen, that was clothed with the countenance of God. He says, these things write me unto you, that your joy may be full. So, Jesus says, well, my body will rest in the hope of the resurrection, for you will not suffer me to see corruption. You will raise my body up, you will glorify me, and as a full human being in a physical resurrection, I will have the countenance of God. What's God's countenance? That of eternal life. Jesus says he will have that, not just in his spirit, but his whole body. And now John comes and he says that that was basically the or, or Luke comes and he says that Jesus said that is the fullness of my joy. I will the fullness of joy that I will be flooded with joy in this resurrection. And now John comes in First John he says that these things he write that our joy might be full. And what does that mean? It simply means that we as human beings may also be clothed in our mortal bodies with a countenance of God sharing in the fullness of God's life wherein He is coming and He brings forth what is always strength for us and we can see the will of God manifest in us. The will of God is the resurrected Jesus at the right hand of the Father. If you want to know what God's word is and what God's will is, look at where Jesus is, what He is and what He promises to be in the return, and now you know the will of God for your life. Now, as we take the communion, as we take the communion, we do this in the knowing that Jesus' body was broken. When the old body was broken, when the old system of sin and death was broken, it could be raised up in an immortal, glorified state wherein it has received the countenance of God. And as we take this communion, we take it in the mindset that Jesus' life is our life. He's conquered our sin, He's conquered our death. death. There is no more condemnation for us. So I want to say to you, 
take the communion in the remembrance of what he has done for you in the expectation of the fullness of joy being clothed with the very countenance of God. Let's enjoy the communion together. God bless. You are our home You're the place we lay our heads And you're where we go for rest You are our home You're the place that we run to And you're the one that we hold on to There's no other could love us like you do There's no other Who could ever take the place of you Now all of our fears are laid to rest And all that we are is yours In your hands What a beautiful sound For you to welcome us home You are our peace You're the shelter from the storm you're the one that keeps us near you There's no other Who can love us like you do There's no other Who could ever take the place of you Now all of our fears are laid to rest And all that we are yours and all that we have is in your hands what a beautiful sound for you to welcome us home Father I want to thank you for your grace and your kindness and your goodness I want to thank you for your love and just the passion that you have for humanity the passion that you have to come and that you had to come and share your life with us. I thank you, Lord, that uh, each one of us that is here can be deeply encouraged by your message. Uh, those that have listened to me online for many years that are here, thank you, Lord, for them being here and just uh, having friends come over to listen to this. And those that will hear what I teach for the first time, I thank you, Father, that uh, you will just empower to understand and to feel the love of God. Thank you for that, Lord. Amen. Amen. I think one of the biggest questions that there is in the human heart is, why are we here? Why are we here? I think that is something that is very, very important for us to understand. We need to understand why we are here. And once we understand why we are here, 
we will be able to define uh, things that is mentioned in the Bible, things like justice, righteousness, justification. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ will start to make sense uh, to us. And we will start to find the power of the gospel uh, touch our lives. Now, one of the greatest things that I have, uh, or that the Lord has revealed to me, is that we are here to be His friends and uh, part of His family. That is what it is all about. Now, I want to start off by reading uh, a verse in Titus. Titus chapter 1, and I'm going to read verse 1 and 2. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, in accordance, in accordance to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. Okay, now that sounds kind of wrong. It almost feels as if uh, man was made and man already had eternal life and now um, and then man sinned and then he lost his eternal life and now only the promise of eternal life is there. But we don't find that according to Paul. Paul says that he's a servant of God, apostle of Jesus Christ and the, uh, his apostleship is according to the faith of God's elect. Now what he's talking about there when he talks about the faith of God's elect is, and the way I see it is that he is referring to the 12 or the 11 that saw him, saw Jesus after the resurrection. They had a certain faith. They had a certain persuasion. And that persuasion was that Jesus was actually raised from the dead physically. And from that persuasion, Paul says here, I am, uh, uh, my teaching is in accordance to what those people believe. They believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, and my teaching is in accordance to that. And then he says um, that his ministry was also in the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. So what he's, what he's talking about is... And how I see it is the truth that Jesus was actually raised from the dead. And this truth that Jesus was actually raised from the dead is there on account account of the godliness of God in uh, bringing forth in the life of Jesus what he has promised Jesus before Jesus died. So what Paul is basically saying in verse 1 here is, he says, I am a servant of God and I'm a sent one by Christ himself and everything of my ministry is all about the resurrected Jesus and what God has accomplished in Jesus. And then he says, um, I'm also ministering in the hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. So in verse 1 and 2, he comes and he makes a wonderful foundation and lays a foundation for his ministry and what he's about to say in Titus here. He says, I am an apostle. What I teach is in line with what the 12 or the 11 uh, saw when Jesus was raised from the dead. 
And he says that my, my whole ministry is in acknowledgement of that truth. I acknowledge that Jesus was really raised from the dead and that it was a godly thing in that he was raised from the dead. And then he goes on and he says, this truth gives me a hope and that hope is the hope of eternal life. And this eternal life that I am hoping for and that I'm expecting from God is that which God has promised before the world began. In other words, God made a promise before the world began that he will give eternal life to man. He's going to give eternal life to man. Now, when most of us hear the word eternal life or the words eternal life, immediately our minds think of heaven. That's what we think of. If we think of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that we should not perish but have everlasting life. The first thing we hear from our subconscious mind and the way we've been indoctrinated is that for God so loved the world that man will not burn in hell, but that they will go to heaven. But if you study the Greek there, and you also study the context and the larger context of what John said and what Paul taught, that was not what was in his mind. What was in his mind is that God gave his son so that man will not die, but that he will live forever. That is what it is. It it talks about eternal life. Heaven is never mentioned there. It talks about a quality of life which is equal to the quality of God's life which can never end. We're talking about immortality, uh, a, a being that cannot die yet in physical form. That is what it's all about. Now, this might sound very radical, but I, wanna, I want you to give it a little bit of thought. If we look at um, the, the end of all things, the answer to all the problems, we find that the answer to all problems, according to God, is a physical man raised from the dead that has no sin in him that can never die. That is the answer to the problem. Because if we look at what the... I mean, from the answer to the problem, we can actually conclude what the original problem was. What, what did God have in mind? Why did he give Jesus? Why did he raise him from the dead? You know, we have, um, I've, I've come to realize that our theological approach to, the, to that which Christ has done basically ends in the death of Jesus on the cross. Because we had the idea that God is an infinite holy God and he's got a holy law and holy commandment and should you transgress the commandment because he's an infinite holy God he has to punish you and then we see Jesus Christ and we take Isaiah 53 which says basically the chastisement for our peace or the punishment came upon him and because the punishment came upon him therefore our punishment or our death was taken and now we are saved from we are saved from punishment 
But if we look at the whole gospel story and what the apostles told us, we see that Jesus was raised from the dead. And then we find that uh, Paul goes so far as to say, should Jesus not have been risen from the dead, that the death of Christ and everything and even our faith would mean nothing. So what he is saying is, is that the answer to all the problems was a physical resurrection. The answer to the problems was a physical resurrection. Now, we see that God came from the beginning, from before the world began. He promised eternal life to man. That's what he wanted. Now, if we ask ourselves the question on um, why, and I want to go to why God made us, And then I'm going to look at this eternal life, what this eternal life actually looks like. Now, with that introduction, uh, with the introduction, all I want you to have in mind is that God promised us eternal life. And eternal life is not defined as a place in heaven, but eternal life is actually defined as a human being that cannot die sharing in the quality of God's life. Think of it that way. Um, I'm not saying there is no heaven. I'm not saying that, uh, um, that there is no consequences for not believing in Jesus Christ or any of those things. All I want you to do is just to take that point and put it in the depth of your heart as we're going to listen. Put it as a foundation. Um, and then we're going to look at why God made us. Now, Uh, Looking at why God made us, I want to go to Acts 17. And we're going to look at Paul standing in defense of uh, what he believed uh, from verse 22. Uh, And before we get into this passage, I want to share a certain logic, which I believe is very dear to Christianity. And a logic that has, uh, that everything, is actually being written in. The Bible, um, the old, the new, everything that was done by Jesus is written in inside what I call a family logic. It's a family logic. So God has got a certain way of thinking about things. The way he thinks about things is not a rulership logic in the sense of the ruler of a country or those kind of things. The way he thinks is through the logic of family. And since he is a very powerful being full of life and all life that there is comes from him, um, who he is has an effect on things. And that's where we can basically look at a rulership. Uh, logic. But the foundation of it all is the logic of family, family logic. So, and the reason why I say that is when Jesus became flesh, what he did was he came and manifested what God was actually saying all the time. He is the word that became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Meaning, should we look at the message that the Old Testament tries to convey? Should we look at Genesis? Should we look at Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all these passages? We have to come to the conclusion that the correct interpretation of all those passages has now materialized and it is walking amongst us so that 
to the to the magnitude of should we see anything in the old that contradicts what or seemingly contradicts what Jesus is and what he has done that we have to go and relook at our interpretation of those passages for here we have the manifested word in other words it would be like uh, what was Isaiah actually trying to say when he uh, uh, and, and what was Malachi trying to say when it says that the day of the Lord shall burn like an oven and the judgment of God shall come and burn up all the stubble and the rubble and all those kind of things. When we look at that passage and we look at Jesus, then we have to say that this Jesus, we find that he didn't come to kill anybody. As a matter of fact, when they when he wanted to go to through, through Samaria and they didn't want to allow him through, his disciples said, shall we call fire down from heaven like Elijah did and kill these people because they're not wanting the Messiah there. Then Jesus said to them, uh, you don't know what spirit you're of. I have not come to destroy man's lives, but I've come to save them. So we have to look at Old Testament passages. We have to look at all those things in the light of what Jesus actually came to do. We find that Jesus, when a woman was caught in the very act of adultery, he did not condemn her, but he actually saved her from death. And with that truth there, we have to conclude that what was burning up and the fire that was burning was actually burning up the logic of those that wanted to stone her. He was burning up their ministries. The vengeance came in. It is as God is taking vengeance on what is destroying man instead of taking vengeance on man. We see that. We see Jesus coming in with a vengeance, destroying the whole way of doing that was known to the Pharisees. We find Jesus, when he appeared to Paul on the way to Damascus, we find that he comes like a shining bright light and he destroys his whole ministry in a second. Isn't it? He came in and he destroyed. But what did he destroy? He didn't destroy Paul. He destroyed the, the, the way Paul was thinking. He, and should Paul, I believe, wanted to continue with his system, he would have experienced the ending and the dying away of that. I believe the Apostle Paul should have continued with his system. He might have been part of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and have died there. You know, that, that can be. Uh, and Jesus was warning against many of those things. But what I'm trying to say is, and this is point two in what I'm teaching here is, the logic that we teach is, has to be found inside Jesus Christ as a family logic because, and this is the point I'm making, Jesus referred to God as Father. He said, Father. And then he even said in Matthew 5 that when it was talking about, uh, 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 when it was talking about financial provision, he says, don't you know that your heavenly father cares for the birds? How much more will he not care for you? So he is bringing the concept of God as an Abba, as a father. 
And the moment you look at God as Father, there are certain points that is in there. And inside the word father, we find the power of a father in a family. And we also find the dynamics of birth. The dynamics of what is in the father is in those that he, um, that is his children. So we, I think with that said, we can, we can look at God as a father and look at what is logic, logical in family, family relationships, and from there define why we are here. If we look at, um, I'm going to just tell the story, then we're going to go to uh, Acts 17, and we're going to look at what the Scripture says, and how the Scripture really points this out. Because if you don't know why you are here, you can be very busy with things that you think you need to do um, for God, which might not even be true. If you work at the Walmart and um, you are there to work at the cash register and you start to sweep the floor, even if you sweep the floor better than the person that must sweep the floor, you're going to lose your job. Because that's not why you are there. You're going to lose your job. You're going uh, 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 you, to always be in trouble. In the very same way, if we are thinking that God has places on the earth for any reason but for the original reason, we will find ourselves all the time in trouble. Not in trouble with God as a person where he's upset with us, but in trouble because what we are made for is uh, uh, our design will not be able to carry the load we put upon us. If I use uh, a normal pickup truck and I think, well, I'm going to use that thing to, to pull semi-trucks, I'm going to break the thing's gearbox. I'm going to break the engine. It is not made for that. And so I believe the same thing with humanity. If we don't know what we have been made for, we will, and if we can be lied to, we will make ourselves available for things we have not been made for and we will break We'll feel pain. We'll feel hurt. Now, let's look at a normal family. In a normal family, why do we have children? Why do we have children? Now, um, in my culture, in how I grew up, which I believe is the way most people would think about this, it is that we would never have children for the purpose of them being our servants. Never. Uh, no one, even if I tell you that, if I tell you, you know what, I've got these three boys because I had a need in the business. I needed someone to run the business and I needed someone to wash the car and I needed someone to, in my ministry to operate the camera. Therefore, I had children. For the purpose of doing that, the moment I say that, there's something in the human heart that says, this is wrong. It's not supposed to be like that. It is against that intrinsic thing inside us, that, that voice that is inside man, that says, this is not right. Uh, yet, we have thought that the reason why God had humans was for the purpose of serving him. Now, if you think that God has made you for the purpose of serving Him, 
And that is not in line with that logic. The family logic or in line, I mean, which was clearly seen by Jesus. Because Jesus said he did not come to be served, but to serve. Isn't that the words that Jesus spoke? Jesus said out of his own mouth, I have not come to get servants, but I have come to serve. It actually, Jesus goes actually so far that he serves his disciples by washing their feet. And after he washed their feet, or while he was washing their feet, he came to Peter. And Peter said, never will you wash my feet. And that Jesus actually said to him, unless I serve you, you cannot have part in my life. And we find that logic congruent with normal family logic. If a child is born and that child is not served by the parent, the child will die. The child will die. Any baby that is born needs the love of the father, the affirmation of the parent, the care for the parent, and all those kind of things in order to survive, in order to live. If that baby doesn't have that, that baby's going to die. The parent, the moment they have children, will serve those children. And many of us that have kids will know that you will always serve your child much more than what he's going to serve you. It's just something that is inside us. We know it. Even if I get old, I'm thinking, one day I want to leave my children an inheritance. I even want to serve them when I'm dead. Isn't it? Now, if we that are of the earth and that follow this normal logic like that, how much, if we are that good, how much more our Heavenly Father? If we don't have children for the purpose of them serving us, but rather that we would serve them and share our lives with them, how would the Almighty God that is our Father which Jesus has declared as the Father. In John 20 he says, My God and your God, and my Father and your Father. How will he not much more have a reason much greater than having servants in having us? So I'm not saying, and I want you to know this, I don't believe the scripture teaches that we will not serve God. I'm just saying the scripture's teaching that that is not the reason why God had us. You are not here because God was in need of someone to work for him. There's another reason why you are here. The other reason that I, um, that I had in mind on why God made man was basically worship. We had the idea that God made man for the purpose of worshiping him. Now, we can just take that thing again to family logic. We can take it to, um, to, to Jesus. Jesus wasn't there to see how many people can sing songs to him. He didn't do that. He didn't sit there and let half people praise him and say, okay, right, now have three songs of worshiping me. That's the reason why I'm here. He didn't have that. 
Although you would find that people would say wonderful things about him. Peter would say in, uh, in Matthew 16, he would say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, and, and they would speak to him with, with reverence and all those kind of things. But we find that Jesus, when he was on the earth, wasn't seeking praises as what we are imagining is taking place in heaven where the angels always sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Uh, we find that there's something else there. Even when we think of our children, who of us has children thinking that the purpose these kids are on this earth and the reason why you have them is so that they can worship you. No. What would you think of a being or of a parent or of a... Let's, let's use a president of a country. If a president of a country is... If a guy is running for president, what is he saying? He says, vote for me for I will serve you, isn't it? Then we'll give him that position. There's something inside us that is automatic like that. The leader has to be the one that makes sure that we have life. It is written into the DNA of every human being. That is why people will actually allow someone else to be over them and govern them. But imagine... Someone is running for president and he says, the reason why I'm running for president is so that when I'm there, that you can worship me. I wonder if you'll get one vote, maybe. You know, if you get anything these days. But I tell you now, that is not how you run a campaign. You're not running a campaign in telling people that when I'm there, the purpose is for you to tell me how great I am, for you to tell me how wonderful I am, how good I am. Because it is absolutely counterproductive and against the very nature of what I believe God has written in the very fiber of every human being. Yet we come and we take a, a, a book called the Bible... And from here we basically have the logic that we must serve God, we must worship God. And then we wonder why there are so many atheists in the world. And why there are so many people hurting when it comes to religion. Having pain, having hurt in their heart, wanting nothing to do with God. They might, many people become Agnostic, just saying, well, I believe there is a being out there because my mind cannot fathom that this just came out of nothing, but that he can never be personal. He can never have relationship because the only logic they have had as pertaining to relationship is one that says, you must serve me and you must worship me. Now, again, I'm saying that... Um, it is not that we will not worship God. We will worship God. Because how <laughs> it is impossible to worship, have reverence for, uh, give honor to, uh, in a Christian sense, sing songs, have praises and prayers of acknowledgement to the Almighty God. But that is not the purpose. That is the fruit of understanding how God has come to serve humanity. Amen. Right.
Now, you might ask the question, if we are not here to serve God, if we are not here for the purpose of worshipping God, although in His love for us we will find that we do serve Him and serve people, we actually serve Him in serving people. Because his very being is born into us. Uh, If we are not here to worship him, although we will sing praises, it still leaves the question, why are we here? Why has God made us? Because having that definition in place, it will give us, it, it will define everything. It will define everything. It will define justice. It will define what's right. All of a sudden, if you find, if, if, if God didn't make you for the purpose of serving you, and you find people believing that the reason why they are here is to serve God, and they are serving God out of that reason, all of a sudden you will start to say, but even the very good work they do is unjust. It's not right. And from that platform you will completely have to redefine, you will start to see If justice is understood for what it's supposed to be, then we're going to understand what happened on the cross. And we're going to understand what happened in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to submit to you the reason why I believe God has made man. And then we're going to look at this in Acts 17. I think the reason, and what I believe is shown in the death and resurrection of Jesus, especially the man Jesus, seated at the right hand of God, the reason why God made man was for family purpose, and that is to have someone else that can share in his life. That's the reason. In normal, simple words, he wanted someone to feel what it feels like to be him, and from that platform have a love relationship with him wherein they walk in friendship with one another. The best way I can explain this is with my own sons. I've got three boys. Um, the oldest is now in his final year in university studying engineering. The other one is in Brazil uh, teaching English at a Bible school there. And the youngest is still in school. Now, if I look at my children, when I had them, When they were babies, the reason wasn't for me to have a baby in the house. That's not why I had them. Uh, It was, and and in my life, I, I mean, I enjoyed them when they were small and everything, but if I must be completely honest, I enjoy them much more now. I mean, when my baby was born, you know, I, I, I grabbed him and I said, you are my heir. Doesn't matter what he's done. Long before he's done anything good or bad. You are my heir. And my life would be that he can believe he is my heir. Because outside of believing that, he will not grab a hold of what I've got for him. Although he is the heir. He has to believe that. His heart has to be persuaded about that. He has to feel comfortable in my house. And all those kind of things. And now when it was Father's Day... You know, my sons called me, and the youngest called me, and he was speaking to me. And he was, and I looked at the conversation we had compared to the conversation we would have had ten years when he was ten years old, six years ago. And that one was basically kind of saying, "Dad, thank you for being a good father and everything," because the mother said to him, "You say that to Dad. It's Father's Day," <laughs> you know. 
<laughs> but now I find when he calls me, he calls me by himself. And he it's not like happy Father's Day. It is Daddy, what are you busy with? What are you doing? Uh, and he starts to find out how's my trip and all those kind of things. And then he says, Dad, I just want to tell you, thank you for the good father that you are. And you find he's growing up a little bit more. And when I look at my oldest son, when he called me, he, he picked up the phone. Hey, Dad, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you for the good father that you are. And then we started to talk about life. We started to talk about politics. We started to talk about the trip. We started to talk about the future of the ministry. We started to talk about the things, what he's thinking about. Uh, should he go and do his master's? Should he go and work? He talked about South Africa and the future of the country and his job. And I find that he's now actually now sharing in my life. He's feeling what it feels like to be me. And from there, we are having a relationship. Now, since I still see myself as wiser than him, and thank God that he sees that. I mean, many of you, as <laughs> I tell you, when a child is, when a child is 10 years old, his dad knows everything. And as he gets to about 17, the dad loses all his knowledge. And as he starts to get to, he must get a job, you at least start to know something again. So he sees that I do have some wisdom and everything. And in this place where he is now sharing in my life, my wisdom and what I have can actually enter him, form him and shape him as he believes upon me. And so he can find who and what I am actually living in him. And as I, as this happens in this family logic, that baby that was born, that was just, uh, th that comes from an egg and a sperm that formed one cell, that was actually then changed into me just in another body, if you're understanding what I'm saying. The only difference is this man has got his own will, own emotions and everything. He's equal to me in design, yet everything he has is on account of me. And I believe that is what God had in mind when he made man. I believe the scripture also teaches that because, like I said in the foundation of this teaching, the introduction is when we look at the word of God that became flesh, the message that he had from the beginning of eternal life, and we want to define that, we find the definition of that eternal life in a man seated at the right hand of God, equal with God as a human being. It's very important to know that Jesus is not a spirit, but that he is a human Remember when Jesus was raised from the dead, after the resurrection, his disciples came and saw him, and Jesus uttered these astounding words, and he said, it is me. The one raised from the dead isn't a different one than the one that died. It is me. The only difference now is that this body is not animated by human ability and food you eat and its own power of thinking and sorting out its own life. It was made alive by the very Spirit of God Himself. Therefore, 
He could go up, sit at the right hand of God as a human being and define the end of it all for us. The purpose of God with man. If you want to know what God's purpose is with you on the earth, look at Jesus, where he is, what he is, how he's united with God, and then you will know why you are here. The Apostle Paul, when he was on the road to Damascus, uh, the, uh, Jesus appeared uh, to him. Now that appearing that he had in Galatians, Galatians 1, is, is, he basically says that Paul comes and he stands in defense of himself, of his own apostleship as well as his, as his word in Galatians. And what he's saying is, he's saying to the people, listen, I want to tell you what I believe I did not get from a man. But I got it from a revelation. And then he explains that revelation in detail. And he calls that revelation the revealing of the Son of God, which was Jesus, on the road to Damascus. So Paul said, I had a revelation. Other words for revelation would be an appearing. The gospel I have is not because the the 11 apostles taught me this. The gospel I have is not because the church in... um, Jerusalem sent messengers and then I got saved by what they teach. No, the message that I have was by Jesus appearing to me. Now that word uh, uh, revelation in the Greek is the word apocalypsis. Apocalypsis. Now you know what word we have today from that word. The apocalypse or the end of it all. If you go and just take a, a normal uh, dictionary and you look the word English dictionary, apocalypse, you will say the complete destruction of the world. So if you want to know how the complete destruction of the world is going to look one day, that's what it's going to look like. There's no worldliness in that man, yet he is fully physical. <laughs> I thank God for his judgment. I thank God for his vengeance. I thank God for his power. And we find the end of it all is a man seated at the right hand of God. Or the way we can say it is, like Stephen said it in Acts 7, we are, when he was stoned, he looked into the heavens, he says, Behold, I see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Most High. If I just use my own words there. And then they stoned him and they killed him for what he said because that was blasphemy. And still today, I think to a certain degree, that is blasphemy. We wanna, we've got the Gnostic way of thinking wherein it was taught that the spirit is holy and the flesh is evil. And we've defined salvation as delivering man from his body. So that his spirit can go to another place, so that this evil body, we can be rid of it, so that we can live in bliss in heaven. Um, if that is our logic, we have to come to the conclusion that earth is simply a spirit factory. Wherein people get born, spirits get formed, so that they can go to heaven. And that there is no reason for this body outside of what the shell of an egg would be to a chicken that gets hatched. This is not a shell. This body is what God has dreamt from the beginning. The only problem with this body is it is dying. 
The problem that there is, is not man breaking God's laws. The problem is man is dying. That is why the solution to the problem was a physical resurrection and not punishment. Now in our next session we're going to talk more about about this whole punishment thing and the law and all of that. But I want you to understand that the reason why we are here, our destination is exactly what Jesus is at the right hand of God. A relationship, when we see Father and Son, when we see the prayer that Jesus prayed while He was on the earth to the Father, we find love relationship, we find intimacy, we find a place where you ask and He answers, we find a union, a oneness. That is it. It makes me think of a time, and just to, I'm, I'm going to use another example. We'll get into Acts 70 now, but I want to use another example. One day I was um, uh, preaching in Las Vegas, and um, I, as I was sharing, somebody's got me with a small gathering like this at their house. They saw me online, and I didn't even plan to go there, and they said to me, listen, uh, we've seen your schedule, it's got three days open. We'll get you a ticket, come and preach at our house, please, in Las Vegas. And I said, okay. I went there, and um, these, these people treated me so well. You know, they, they loved on me. I mean, we went driving with a Corvette and all those kind of things, very nice. And then they said, he said to me, do you want a helicopter flight over the Grand Canyon? So I look, I mean, that's like a once in a lifetime opportunity for a guy living in South Africa. I mean, over here you can kind of do it, you know. One day you decide, I'm going to do it. But if you live down there, then that trip becomes very expensive. <laughs> you know, flying here and everything, being away from people, all that. So I said to him, no thanks. And the only reason why it would why I said no thanks was I would have that trip alone. My wife's not there. I would have all of that just for myself. And I don't have I wouldn't have somebody with me there outside of the pilot and maybe some tourists that knows what it feels like to be me. Who I know who it feels like to be her, wherein we can share the fullness of that moment. Marriage to me, if I look at my wife and I, I mean this, the, the reason why do we, if we see something beautiful, take a picture and send it? Because of the dynamic of someone that is just like us, that will know what it feels like to be us, and sharing it because they share with you. That's family logic. And I want to submit to you that that is what I believe the Bible teaches, why God made you. And anything contrary to that, or that would oppose that, would be defined as the enemy. And when we look at the justice, or even if you want to call it the violence of God, or the wrath of God, it is towards what destroys man. That is what it is. Acts 17. Paul stood and he was now speaking to the, um, to the Greek philosophers and 
he was actually, this was actually a, 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 a record of a court case where he was defending himself. He says, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars' heel and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very superstitious or religious. For as I passed by and I beheld all your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So these people had all these altars and they temples and they were working for God. And then it says here, um, Whom therefore you ignorantly worshipped, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands. So the first thing he does in uh, correcting their theology is their theology, their uh, 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 the word they believe they have from God is, because theology is two words, theos and logos, the logic of God. So their logic of God is that God wants temples on the earth that we must build with hands that he can dwell in them. That's what he thought. And then God, he comes, he says, uh, Paul comes, he says, God does not, since he is the creator of heaven and earth, he's not in need of such a dwelling place. So your theology is wrong. It's outside of your very own logic. Because what they believed, I mean, they all believed that, um, let me just read this. They all believed that God made the world and all things that were therein. And they all believed that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. Even in their uh, weird or different ways of belief and all their myths they have and all those kind of things. That is what they believe. And he, now he's using that logic and say, how can such a God now dwell in a little building you built for him? That means and that concludes that your logic about God in what you do here cannot be right. So the first thing he tries to say here is that God cannot live in temples made by hands. And he goes further and he uses this logic of the Almighty God. He says, neither is he worshipped with man's hands as though he needs anything. So what he's saying is, you guys, you've got a logic about God that says the purpose why you are here is to serve him. But what he says is if you think you are here to serve him, on the contrary, the other side of the coin is that you are saying that he is in need and he cannot manage. Isn't it? It's exactly what he's saying. He's saying you cannot manage. You cannot... God needs servants. Why does Pharaoh need slaves? Because Pharaoh cannot build the stuff himself. He's too weak. Why do we need servants? Because we cannot manage with everything. The man who started this university, he couldn't... Why does he have people to teach here? Because he doesn't know everything they know. And he maybe doesn't even have the ability to teach. Who knows? You know, we, there's so many things. It needs to be a team effort because of the one that cannot do it. And here he says, if your logic is that God lives in that temple, you're actually saying he's not the God of heaven and earth. And if you say that the reason why you are here is to build that, 
You are saying that he is weak. He's not the almighty God. Plus you are saying he cannot manage. If you think that that is why you are here. Then he goes on, he says, God who made the world and all things that are therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands, neither is he worshipped with man's hands as though he needs anything, seeing he gives to all life and breath and all things. So if someone gives to all people life and breath and all things, you cannot conclude that you are here to serve him. The only thing you can conclude is, he's given me life, why? It cannot be serving him, because he can manage. And he has made of one blood all nations of men for to, now he gives the reason, for to dwell on the face of the earth, and he has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they may feel after him, and find him, though he be not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain of your own poets have said, for we are all his offspring. So, he's coming and he's saying here that God placed man upon the earth, and the reason why he's placed man upon the earth, and he made them all out of one blood, he's made man, put them upon the earth, that they should seek the Lord. Now that word, that they should seek the Lord, we can make that and interpret that inside the light of slavery, saying he should seek him as in hide and seek. God is hiding and you are seeking. And if you've got ten seek credits, then you can be saved. But that's not what I was talking about here. If you, if you study that word seek there, that seeking is like, uh, like Adam. When Adam was made, there was a seeking after a wife. As what there is a natural seeking for me. I remember when I was in school. This is how I lived as pertaining to relationships. I didn't think on what girlfriend can I get. In my, in my mind, it was this. I received the Lord... And this was what was in my mind. Even before that, I am not seeking a girlfriend. I want my wife. That's all. That's why my first girlfriend, first, the one that I, I mean, this, here she is, Helena. I'm married to her today. That was my mind, in my mind. I was seeking, there was a seeking inside of me for her. And that seeking was part of my very being. And I believe we see that seeking in people uh, showing that they want a God in certain, uh, to a certain extent. He says, God has made man to seek the Lord. And there's a whole message just in the fact that the word Lord is, is used there. If happily they might feel after him. So what, what, what God was saying is, he made man and he gave to man the natural ability to have a desire for God. For the purpose that he can reveal himself to man if happily they might Feel after him. 
Now what that means, if you study that in the Greek, is that God was confronting, God was making man, and then he came to present himself with man. This man was made to have a desire for a God. Then he came and he presents himself with this man in the hope that this man will happily feel after him. Happily feel simply means that, in simple words, that who he is would strum the strings of their heart. That's what it means. Go and study it out. That feel means the strumming of a stringed instrument. So God made man. And he, when he made man, he made man to have a desire for him. And in order to have a desire for him, he has to have... Uh, in his makeup, he had to have a mind, will, emotions, feelings, and the ability to believe, which we can still talk about for another hour. But that is what he made. Then he had this, you almost see uh, what a man would feel like if he knows he's going to ask a woman if she would marry him. He's trembling. He's like, I hope that who I was has really strummed the strings of her heart, so that when I ask her to marry me, that she might say yes. And we see that family logic, we see that marital language in the creation of man. We find clearly that Paul comes and he says that uh, between Jesus and us is marriage relationship. Marriage logic, father-son logic, husband-wife logic. We see it. So here we see in the making of man, he comes and he says that he has placed man upon the earth and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of the, of the habitation that they should naturally have an inclination towards God, the one that will give them life. And the hope was that they would that they might happily feel after him and so find him. Though he be not far from any of us. So what he's saying is that who God is and who man is is not very far apart. Okay? Let me put it this way. I don't understand all of biology and all of that, but I want to just say this. As we would say, a chimp and a monkey is not too far from each other. They're the same kind of a being. In the very same way it's used here, we are not far from God. And he was, he placed man on the earth to seek after God. I want him. I want that life. I want eternal life. And he has done that to present himself as the one that can grant that life. Give that life. To be the giver of that life. Should man want that? And the purpose was that man would then so find God. Feel what it feels like to be him. Not to be God. We will never be God. But we would be in relationship with Him. As what I have, uh, I look at my life, I am, uh, I've got a ministry, I'm owner of ministry, I preach the gospel everywhere. Imagine I want a child to have that. 
What will I do? I'll make him. I'll give him a mind, will and emotions. I want him to think and feel. I'll raise him up in my ways. And, the, and I will make him. And he will be at a place where one day he also has to have a job. And all those kind of things. And then he would look at mine. And it would be the hope that he can find this life. For I know it's good. And that is what God wanted. He wanted man to find the eternal life of the Almighty God in a human form. That's what he wanted. Now let's read on. And it explains it further, talking about eternal, immortal life in a human body. Let's read verse 28. In him we live and move and have our being, so we are the God being. As certain of his own poets have said, for we are, we are his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the Godhead like unto gold, silver, stones, graven by art and man's devices. So what he's saying here is, listen, I want to tell you that the Almighty God is not some physical statue you can worship. Since your poets have said that you are his offspring, and you are living human beings, therefore, the God you serve, if you want to use those words, or the God that you are looking for, cannot be of a physical thing in the sense of a dead tree. It cannot be a dead tree. It has to be something that looks like you. Now, what God do you know of that looks like a human? that has got a physical human body. There is only one. And Paul is setting this thing up so beautifully. I hope you can... Listen, he is standing trial for his life here. And he's setting it up. Not caring if he's dying. Showing them what they're actually seeking. Beautiful. <laughs> this makes me so <laughs> It makes me happy to think of this master plan that God had. He comes and he, and he says, listen, the God you are looking for cannot live in this temple. Neither can he be served with man's hands as though he needs anything. It is a being that looks like you. It can't, it can't be these, these tree stumps you are worshipping and all those kind of things. Never think of the Godhead like unto gold and silver and stone or any of those things. Why? For you are, you are His offspring. Meaning that there's, and you are not far from Him. So you look like each other, but there's maybe a small difference. But, and the only difference we will find out here is that we are humans in a dying body and God was incarnated into a human being that has got an ever-living body, sharing in the full quality of God's life. Now he goes on and he says here, For as much then as we are offspring of God, we ought not to think of the Godhead as it is like unto gold and silver and stone graven by art of man's devices. At that time of ignorance God winked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because, now remember, he wants man to know God. To find God. That's what he wants. He says, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that 
man whom he ordained, whereof he has given assurance unto all men to find God, in that he raised him from the dead. Okay. <laughs> the title of the message is Eternal Life. God, from the beginning, had a dream that man would find eternal life. His life. It has a family logic to it. It's got the same reason why we have children, the reason why we marry, why we want to be one, why we want to share life, all those kind of things. That is the logic behind it all. God was not in need of servants. He was not in need of worshippers. He wanted to simply share his life with man. And he wanted man to find God. He wanted, uh, 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 remember, God is the only immortal, written in Timothy. God is the only immortal. And he wanted, he took dust which was dead, and he wanted the dead dust to find God. That's what he wanted. And we have come to see that this God is not an a, a, a abstract form of light just shining somewhere, but he's a warm-hearted being that can best be expressed in a human. My goodness. <laughs> Hallelujah. He comes and he does that. And he brings man to that point. And what he's saying here is that he has given assurance to all men to find him when he raised Christ from the dead. So, what did he do? The next session we can look at that. He took man and all the sin that was on man. Sin would be and the definition of sin, one of the definitions in the Greek for sin is to miss the goal, to miss the mark, to miss the original plan. And all of its consequences, it took it and put it on one man that represents and is the truth of all of us. And he entered the depths of our death and our darkness. And he was raised up in a physical body where in that body, which is true about us, found God in its immortality, sharing in its life, sharing in its goodness, being above sin, above death, and all those kind of things. That body, that man, found God. Found not in God was lost, but he, 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 it, it, it happened that God would live in there. In that being, having a love relationship between father and son where, the, where God is the father of his life. And so he has now given assurance to every man. So I want to tell you, you can be sure that you will find that life. Why? Because he raised Jesus from the dead. He has come and served you with that eternal life. He's come and served you with a place in the Godhead. He has come and served you with what Stephen saw when he was being stoned, when he said, I see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Most High. Concluding that that life there is this life here. The only thing is, we find that when something is righteous, one of the root meanings in the Old Hebrew is 
It's the balancing, balancing of a scale. And we find that we in Christ have the right unto eternal life, but we are finding our bodies are still mortal. Yet God has come and He's given the spirit of this life and He has put it inside us. And that spirit will bring forth the very eternal life of God in us. Even if we die, there will be a day wherein He will judge the world in righteousness. In other words, God will come to the earth in the physical Jesus Christ and He will judge this world in righteousness. And what He will do is He will say, This is my judgment. I have given assurance unto all men. Repent of trying to have life by your works and your idolatry and all those kind of things. Believe upon me and I will bring what is right to everyone that calls upon me, whose heart has been strummed by my love and who wants this. I will come with my judgment and I give assurance to Jew and Gentile, whoever you are, as you believe upon me, I will bring my judgment to you and you will find me. And that is, I will raise you from the dead and you will shine like the sun. You will share in the goodness of God and feel what it feels like to share in immortality, which is found in love and peace and kindness and all those kind of things. And in doing that, that power is so great that even nature, I'm talking about this physical planet, will explode into the very same glory and that that which God has planned from the beginning shall be manifested. That is the justice of God. That is the righteousness of God. That is the judgment of God. And that is what He is bringing forth. He had a dream for humanity. And the Bible says, before the world began. In other words, He made Adam from the dust of the earth. Before Adam fell and worldliness started to manifest in the earth, He made Adam from the dust of the earth. And the promise to Adam was, Do you see me and what I am? You are in my image and the fullness of my likeness shall still manifest in you. Believe and trust on me. Don't believe in your own ability. Don't believe in the ability of dust because you are dust. Don't trust that. I'm about to take something that is dead and have something that is dead, have no death in it and share and know God. What a loving God that he would take dust and give dust the opportunity to share in something that only one being in existence has, and that is God himself, eternal life, flooded with love. He took dust and gave dust that opportunity. That is what he has done. That is what he has brought forth. That is what he has dreamt for humanity. But the problem that came in was there was a lie told to Adam and Eve about the integrity of this God. And when they believed the lie, they went to the very ability of dust. They went into their own flesh and they tried to have eternal life, to live and not die in themselves by doing good works. 
They said, well, we see an infinite, holy, loving God, flooded with love, flooded with kindness, flooded with goodness. He lives forever. And then the devil came and said, listen, you can, you've got the very same thing in you. You are an eternal, immortal being without God. God is just trying to keep you uninformed. Because he's scared you're going to discover what you are. He doesn't want another God. He doesn't want another being like him. And what happened? Man thought that they are actually now in slavery to God. Never saw the good that God wanted to give. They looked at God, what God did, who he was. And they said, well, since I am uh, an eternal, immortal being, I will just do the good that God does and live a wonderful life. Exactly is what we find today in atheism and in, in Buddhism and all those kind of things. I am an e- eternal being. All I've got to do is just live good. And what happened to Adam and Eve? They died. Why? Because they couldn't give God, the, they didn't give God the opportunity to take the dust and seal it into immortality. But we have found that there was a man that has believed God, was sealed into immortality. But the great thing about this man, Jesus Christ, is that the death he conquered was that of all people, not just his own. So now we believe on what has happened there and the hope that brings to us. And we receive then, therefore, the spirit that raised Christ from the dead, whereby we say, Abba. Father. And when we say Father in the Jewish understanding, if you call God your Father, you have to possess immortality. You have to live and not die, since He is the only immortal. Amen? Isn't God good? <laughs> I mean, this, what I've preached here, is a little bit different to what we normally used to. But this makes sense. This gives me. Hope, this makes me realize why Jesus says he is the way and there is no other way. It's like uh, Oprah Winfrey. I watched an old video of her where she talked about different ways unto God. Now, I don't want to belittle her or anything. I can understand why she says what she says. Because what was presented as the destination, which was heaven, there is many religions that teaches a way unto heaven. But I don't know of any religion that presents a way unto immortality with some proof outside of your own works. There is no other way. I would like to ask Oprah Winfrey, show me any other way unto a physical, immortal body flooded with the love and the goodness of God wherein there, there is proof of such a resurrected human being already. Show me any other religion that presents that. And she will say to me, there is no one, just this one. So in other words, she would be saying to me that by her acknowledgement that this religion or this belief is the only way. There is no other. <laughs> There's not even another on the table. In this message of the gospel, I find reason 
for existence in a human body. It makes sense. The earth makes sense. The whole thing of God becoming a human, living on this earth, being raised from the dead, promising to return, all of it makes sense. And you know what? And I end off with this. The magical power of... There is something... I'm just going to say it's like magical. It can be explained. There's a way on how it works. But if I come to you, let me put it this way, if I come to you and I give you a law, there's kids playing here and they've got toys here and I've got a, a, a bucket up there on the piano and they're just playing here, not even minding the bucket, they will play and enjoy it here. But the moment I say to them, don't look into that bucket, you will find that there's a magic power that causes them, it's stronger than their own will. It's stronger than everything inside them. They will do it. In the very same way, we, when we try and obey the Ten Commandments, we find that the good that we want to do, we cannot. There's just a power that we find we cannot have that life. In the very same way, when you believe in this physical resurrection of Christ and you see this as the truth, you find in that same magical or powerful way, you find you start to love your neighbor. You find you start to become generous and kind. You find that the very spirit of that life starts to live in you. Where you can say, I am taught of God, not by a commandment, but by the very life of God has taught me how to live God, for I have now found God. Not as if he was gone, but found as in come into the same kind of existence. So we start to see the first effects of that in our lives. And what do we have? We have the hope that Paul says, there was a promise of eternal life, and I have seen this life manifest to me, and I'm confirming what those people saw, and I have now the hope of the resurrection, the raising from the dead. Glory to God. That's what God has come to bring us. You are valuable. Your body is not a shell like an eggshell that's just going to be done away with. No. The body you have, because it is a dying body, is just a shadow of what it will be in the sense of if someone is a healthy athlete, age 23, full of life, and you meet that same guy when he's 85 or 90 years old, you will say, he's just a shadow of the former self. Yet it is the same person. In the very same way, we are a shadow of what we shall be, but it will be us glorified. And the moment we believe upon this, everything that is inside human, uh, uh, that is inside mortality, that wants to harm itself and others, it, there's no need for us to by our own power to try and preserve our own lives. We find that our lives are preserved in the Almighty God. And that is why we find sin stop in our lives. For God has given us the promise of eternal life 
He has given the proof of it. And He's poured out His Spirit that convinces us. And as we believe upon this, we'll find Him rule and reign in our lives and in the earth. Amen. Let us pray. Father, I want to thank You for this message. I want to thank You for the gospel of grace. I want to thank You, Lord, that what You have done, the human mind could never have imagined. It is something that our brains, the neuropaths in our brain, it would not even be possible. But you've come and made it possible. And you've come and given us that logic by proving to us your love for us. Thank you, Lord, that we can say, as John said, for God so loved the world that he gave his son so that we can have eternal life. Find you. Thank you, Lord. And that, and that we are beings that's not far from you. You have come. And you will, we will find your fullness by your Spirit as you manifest your life in us. Thank you that we don't have to live by guilt and obligation to laws, but that we can actually now live by the revelation of what you have truly given unto humanity. Amen. Amen. I would like to open this up for some questions. Um, you can keep it on. If there's any questions... Okay, then I'll ask some questions. <laughs> um, I did, I, just a comment. It was about the family logic and when you were talking about um, the photo to your wife. Yeah. Sharing the experience, being at one, going through that together and feeling each other. That hit home right there at that moment because we do it. We all do it. It's yeah. the age of technology now where like I, I had a flower the other day that was growing in our house. It was different than what we had before. I took a snapshot of it and sent it to my wife. I'm like, I do that, but it makes sense. I enjoyed that moment, and I wanted to share it with her, and I wanted her to have the same experience and be there because it meant less that she was not there. Exactly, and I think the same thing with God. Uh, although the Almighty God has got no needs, there is—it seems to be as if there's something that He says there is a greater expression of His life in sharing it. Yes. You know, he that is, he wants, he wants to share. share and engage with exactly. That is, that is, you know, I was doing a wedding in Myrtle Beach, and um, <clears throat> this is what came to my mind. You'll find people, although they, uh, a guy and a girl might have lived together for five or ten years, you know, and they might be atheists. The moment they say we, we're getting married, Everybody, wow, you know, wow, this is so beautiful. This is so wonderful. And then she will go and stand there with a white dress. And I said that at the wedding, I said, why?
Adiós.